Chapter 5, Part 4 of Twenty Years of the Republic, 1885 to 1905, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Presidency of Benjamin Harrison, Part 4. Early in that month, a Chilean ship, the Itata, chartered by the Congressional Party, put in at the harbor of San Diego in California. It was reported to the government at Washington that the Itata was taking on a cargo of arms and ammunition for the Chilean rebels in defiance of the neutrality laws. On May 6th, a United States marshal took possession of the ship, forbidding it to leave the port. On the following day, the Itata's commander cut her cable, overpowered the United States officers, and put to sea, carrying them away as prisoners. This high-handed proceeding stirred the Washington government to instant action. The cruiser Charleston was dispatched in swift pursuit with orders to take the Itata and to sink her if she resisted. When the Chileans heard of this, the hotheads among them sent their new steel cruiser, the Esmeralda, to meet the Itata and to protect her against capture. The Charleston and the Esmeralda were ships of equal size and armament, and the result of a fight between them was awaited with breathless expectancy. It was supposed that the Itata would put in at the harbor of Acapulco on the Mexican coast and to this harbor the Charleston hastened. The Esmeralda did the same, and both cruisers lay there with steam up, with decks cleared for action and with the crews ready at their guns. It was an exciting moment, but no shot was fired, for the Itata failed to appear and made her way direct to her destination. By the time of her arrival there, the Congressionalists had thought better of their defiance of the United States and on June 4th they delivered up the Itata to Rear Admiral McCann in command of the American squadron at Iquique. Note 46, page 231. The revolt in Chile proved to be successful. On August 7th, Balmaceda's forces were routed by the Congressional Army, which marched upon the capital, Santiago, and entered in triumph. Balmaceda took refuge in the Argentine legation where, on September 18th, he committed suicide. A new government was proclaimed in Chile under the presidency of Señor Jorge Montt. Everywhere the revolutionists prevailed and they were now formally recognized by the United States. The most serious part of the whole affair was, however, still to come. Soon after becoming Secretary of State, Mr. Blaine had secured the appointment as Minister to Chile of Mr. Patrick Egan. Mr. Egan was one of the group whom Mr. Blaine's political opponents were accustomed derisively to call Blaine Irishmen. He had not long been naturalized as an American citizen, having come to the United States somewhat hastily, in order to escape arrest and imprisonment at the hands of the British authorities in Ireland, who charged him with political offenses in connection with the Irish Land League. Critics of the Harrison administration spoke of Mr. Egan as an escaped jailbird, and even insinuated that he had been connected with the Phoenix Park murders in 1882. There was not a shadow of truth in all this. Mr. Egan was a man of ability and honor, who had simply made himself disliked by the castle set in Dublin at a time when the British government was trying one of its periodical experiments in repression. Nevertheless, his appointment to a diplomatic post was properly open to criticism. And in Chile especially, where there were so many influential English residents, it was a cause of social embarrassment. Mr. Egan, moreover, in carrying out his early instructions to recognize the Balmaceda government, had perhaps erred through excess of zeal, so that he was peculiarly obnoxious to the Congressionalists, who regarded him as a partisan of their enemy. 
when santiago fell and the troops of the revolution entered that city intoxicated with their victory there were enacted fearful scenes of lust and wholesale murder many of the balmacedists fearing for their lives took refuge in the american legation begging the protection of the minister by the law of nations the precincts of an embassy or of a legation are regarded as being the soil of that country whose flag flies over it but whether the immunity which such a place enjoys should be used to protect citizens of the state to which the embassy is accredited is a disputed point mr egan however received the balmacedists among them the late minister of foreign affairs and the late governor of santiago together with members of their households the new chilean foreign minister demanded the surrender of the fugitives mr egan hoisted the american flag and declined to accede to the demand the chileans were furious yet they hesitated to violate the sanctity of the legation they tried other means however hoping to annoy mr egan into compliance the neighborhood of his residence swarmed with spies drunken soldiers reeled by yelling out vile epithets and making boisterous threats it was believed by mr egan that a plot existed to set fire to the legation and thus drive out the fugitives meanwhile the chilean state department carried on a correspondence with the american minister with regard to the rights of the question from the standpoint of international law here mr egan neatly scored on his adversary in a series of very able notes in which he showed that in eighteen sixty six during a revolution in peru the chilean government had directed its minister in that country to insist upon two principles the right of asylum and the right of safe conduct to a neutral territory for persons taking shelter in a foreign legation in eighteen eighty eight at the congress of american republics chile had again defended the same principles mr egan in fact made out so good a case as to put an end to the design of taking his guests from him by force though the right of safe conduct was still denied all this controversy following upon the charges against admiral brown and also the affair of the Itata, intensified chilean animosity toward the united states the newspapers contained violent attacks upon egan blaine and americans in general every sort of slanderous story was circulated and believed and day by day popular feeling grew more and more inflamed at this time the united states cruiser baltimore commanded by captain w s schley was in the harbor of valparaiso on october seventeenth captain schley rather unwisely gave shore leave to nearly one hundred of his sailors within a few hours after they had landed they were surrounded by a mob of over two thousand chileans who separated them into small groups and then attacked them the sailors were unarmed but defended themselves manfully until a body of fifty policemen armed with carbines and bayonets took part in the assault upon them two of the americans were killed one of them being shot by a policeman and eighteen were badly stabbed cut or bruised by stones the rest were dragged to prison through the streets some of them by the heels amid the threats curses and uproar of the mob the news of this affair naturally caused great indignation in the united states and it led to a long and voluminous diplomatic correspondence as well as to a sharp interchange of notes between captain schley of the baltimore and the intendente of valparaiso of course the sailors who had been dragged to prison were speedily released but the chilean authorities were unwilling to admit that the united states had a just grievance an investigation instituted by captain schley showed the facts concerning the assault to have been those which have been here set forth that the police of valparaiso had taken part with the mob in shooting and otherwise assaulting unarmed bluejackets the chileans on the other hand asserted that the americans were drunk 
and that they had provoked the attack by their outrageous conduct. The charge of drunkenness was doubtless true, for sailors of whatever nationality are not wont to ask for shore leave from motives which would commend themselves to total abstinence societies. Note 47, page 235. But it was perfectly evident that the attack had been made upon them because of hatred to the uniform they wore, and that it was directed against them not as individuals, but as Americans. The conduct of the police, moreover, showed an official animosity which surpassed even that of the rabble. Under the circumstances, Secretary Blaine insisted upon a specific apology from the Chilean government, and upon an indemnity to the wounded men and to the families of those who had been killed. The Chileans put the demand aside pending a further investigation on their part. This investigation was protracted interminably, and on November 25th Mr. Blaine complained of the delay. The Chilean minister in Washington informed him that Spanish law was slow in its processes but exact in its conclusions, and with this statement Mr. Blaine was for the time forced to be content. It was plain enough that the Chileans intended to postpone any definite action and to let the affair drag along until it should have been half forgotten. From time to time vague hints were made looking to arbitration, but nothing definite was suggested. Meanwhile, the newspapers of Santiago and Valparaiso continued their abuse of the North Americans, and especially of Mr. Egan and Mr. Blaine. It looked as though the final outcome of the incident might be very grave. As a precautionary measure, the United States government put all its vessels of war into commission. Rear Admiral Walker, with a squadron, was ordered to Brazil, and the vessels already stationed off the Pacific coast were held in readiness for active service. At this time, the opposition press in the United States, very intemperately, accused Mr. Blaine of seeking to stir up a war with Chile. Reviewing all the evidence, it is impossible now to hold this belief. Mr. Blaine's attitude was a firm one, yet it is certain that all the while he was exerting his influence to hold back the President. Mr. Harrison was, perhaps unconsciously, influenced by the thought that a foreign war would almost certainly re-elect him. But whatever his motives, he seemed anxious to force matters to a point at which war would become inevitable. Mr. Blaine, on the other hand, displayed a commendable patience, and refrained from any action which could be regarded as precipitate. Note 48, page 237. The Baltimore was withdrawn from Valparaiso. The Boston, which was cruising in Chilean waters, merely touched there and then proceeded northward. During the critical days of December, although the harbor of Valparaiso was dotted with foreign ships of war, the United States was represented only by the little gunboat Yorktown, under the orders of Commander Robley D. Evans. Commander Evans was a Virginian who had adhered to the Union throughout the Civil War, in which he had fought with great gallantry, receiving several serious wounds. He was popularly known to his comrades in the Navy as Fighting Bob, a name which was always a curious puzzle to the honest commander himself, for in his own estimation he was one of the most peaceful of living men. He thought himself a miracle of patience and forbearance, whereas in fact he was never truly happy unless he could sniff the smell of gunpowder. He resembled that interesting hero of Conan Doyle's who vivaciously announced that he would slash to pieces any man who dared describe him as pugnacious. The position of Commander Evans at Valparaiso was a very trying one. Nearly the whole of the Chilean fleet was distributed about him in the harbor. If he went ashore, he was dogged by spies and scowled at by the rabble. The foreign element, especially the Germans, were still more unfriendly, if such a thing were possible. 
Finally, the government at Washington depended upon him for frequent and detailed accounts of the state of public feeling, while Mr. Egan was continually sending to him from Santiago messages of the most alarming character. Commander Evans, however, kept his head and carried off the situation in admirable form. He treated the Chilean officials with punctilious courtesy, while at the same time resenting hotly any overt acts of enmity. The Chilean torpedo boats began to engage in what they called practice drill. This drill consisted for the most part in speeding their craft as near to the Yorktown as was possible without touching it, often within a distance of a few feet. The object of this was twofold. First of all, it was meant to show the American commander how utterly he was at their mercy. In the second place, it was intended as a little diversion at the expense of the Yorktown and for the amusement of the German, French, and English naval officers whose ships were in the harbor. After a few days of this sort of thing, Commander Evans sent for the officer in charge of the torpedo drill and protested against his action as discourteous. "'I beg to inform you,' said the Chilean, with a veiled sneer, that the water of this harbor belongs to my government and that I propose to use it in maneuvering the torpedo boats under my command. Very good, returned Commander Evans, but I beg to inform you that the Yorktown is the property of my government and that if one of your boats so much as scratches its paint, I will blow her bottom out. Note 49, page 238. This put a speedy end to the Chilean torpedo drill. On another occasion, a party of roughs amused themselves by throwing stones at one of the small boats of the Yorktown and daring the men in it to come ashore. Commander Evans at once visited the Chilean cruiser, Cochrane, whose captain, Vile, was a senior officer, not only of the fleet but of the city. Evans has described the interview in these words which suggest that his sobriquet of Fighting Bob was not wholly misapplied. I could hardly hold myself down while I told him of it, but I did and then read him the riot act. I demanded of him immediate and efficient protection by the police, and served notice on him then and there that a repetition of the offense would be sufficient evidence that they could not control their people, and that I should arm my boats and shoot any and every man who insulted me or my men or my flag in any way. Vile was greatly shocked, turned as white as a sheet. My manner was not very mild, I fancy swore and damned the discharged soldiers and said they were doing all they could to involve the country in war with the United States. After a few moments, Captain Vile hastened on shore to jump on the police, assuring me that I should have an ample apology tomorrow. Note 50, page 239. In the meantime, the situation of the refugees in the American legation at Santiago was becoming a very serious one. Crowded into a comparatively small house, unable to leave its shelter, their lives threatened at every moment, they were doubtful whether the protection accorded them by the American minister would prove effectual for very long. The Chileans were now willing to let them slip away secretly to the shore, but refused to grant them formally a safe conduct. As the American government still refrained from pressing matters to an extremity, the arrogance of the Chileans increased from day to day. Most of them believed in all sincerity that their navy was more than a match for that of the United States. Their newspapers boasted that in case of war, San Francisco would be laid in ashes and that the whole Pacific coast of the United States would be ravaged and laid under contribution. This boast, although it seems preposterous now, was not wholly due to the sort of pride which goes with Spanish blood. There was in Valparaiso a very large German colony composed of merchants and persons engaged in shipping. They, together with the English, had largely monopolized the foreign trade of Chile, thanks to the high protective tariff of the United States. 
The Chileans, therefore, knew little about Americans. They did not trade with them. They seldom saw them, and they listened eagerly to the German talk about the helplessness and general insignificance of the United States. It came at last to be an article of faith that in the event of war the German Empire would come to the support of Chile. One finds it difficult to believe that any such delusion possessed the government officials in Santiago. Yet perhaps one member of that government may have entertained it, since otherwise it is very difficult to understand his action. On December 11, 1891, Señor Don Manuel Mata, formerly a journalist but now the Minister of Foreign Affairs, addressed a telegram to the Chilean minister in Washington relating to a message on Chilean affairs sent by President Harrison to Congress. In this telegram, language was used which was insulting not only to Mr. Egan, but to Secretary Tracy and even to President Harrison. Señor Mata spoke of the President's statement as erroneous or deliberately incorrect, deliberadamente inexactos. A note of Mr. Egan's was described as aggressive in purpose and virulent in language. Mata's telegram ended with an allusion to what he called the intrigues which proceed from so low a source and the threats which come from a source so high. This dispatch was read by Mata to the Chilean Senate and was telegraphed to all the Chilean legations in Europe, thus publishing the insult to the world. Mr. Egan at once sent a note to Senor Mata demanding to know whether the text of the telegram as given in the newspapers was correct. Mata replied that it was, intimating at the same time that it did not concern anyone save the government of Chile and its officials. The Chilean minister at Washington thoroughly appreciated the blazing indiscretion of which his chief had been guilty, and he took the responsibility of suppressing the offensive telegram so far as he could do so. It was, however, cabled to the American press and was read by the American people with intense indignation. Even Mr. Blaine no longer sought to hold President Harrison in check. Preparations for war were openly begun. The Navy yards at San Francisco and Brooklyn worked night and day. A squadron of eight cruisers was assembled in Pacific waters. Blockading ships were ordered to be bought, and an ultimatum was finally sent to the Chilean government containing three peremptory demands. First, that the Mata telegram should be withdrawn, its language disowned, and an explicit apology offered for it. Second, that an indemnity should at once be paid for the outrage upon American sailors. And third, that the refugees in the American legation at Santiago should receive a safe conduct to neutral territory. For a moment the scales were evenly balanced between peace and war. Volunteers offered their services to the War Department in Washington. The Chileans boggled over the terms which Mr. Blaine had laid before them. They talked of arbitration. They offered, while refusing to withdraw the Mata telegram, to declare that it was not meant to be offensive. The Chilean minister argued that it was a purely domestic communication and therefore privileged. Mr. Blaine and the President, however, stood firm, and on January 23rd the Chilean government executed a complete backdown. The terms in which its submission was offered left nothing to be desired on the score of completeness, wrote Senor Pereira to Mr. Egan. The undersigned deplores that in that telegram there were employed through an error of judgment the expressions which are offensive in the judgment of your government, in fulfillment of a high duty of courtesy and sincerity toward a friendly nation, the government of Chile absolutely withdraws the said expressions a declaration which is made without reservation in order that it may receive such publicity as your government may deem suitable. 
the sum of seventy-five thousand dollars was paid from the chilean treasury to the injured sailors of the baltimore and the refugees in the american legation received a safe conduct and left chilean territory unmolested under the protection of the united states note fifty one page two forty two this was the second incident during the harrison administration which showed that the american people were no longer unconcerned with their foreign relations as in samoa so in chile a new spirit in american diplomacy had been manifested in a striking manner and had made it plain to all the world that the united states was becoming a force to be reckoned with in international affairs mr blaine's enemies at home bitterly attacked his conduct of these negotiations the opposition press accused him of jingoism of duplicity and of insincerity so violent was this opposition in the end as to find expression in the most unpatriotic sentiments at the very moment when peace and war were trembling in the balance a semi-political association in new york known as the reform club actually invited a chilean emissary to address it and listened with applause to his venomous attacks upon the president and government of the united states note fifty two page two forty three such incidents as this however merely disgusted and repelled all right-thinking people and mr blaine came out of the chilean imbroglio with his popularity greater even than it had been before not long after the chilean affair had reached its climax events of much interest took place in a distant island of the pacific the little kingdom of hawaii had for forty years been living under a constitutional monarchy which continued the line of native kings its independence had been guaranteed by france and england in eighteen forty three and the united states though not a party to this agreement had nevertheless on more than one occasion used its armed forces to repress disorder and maintain the reign of law the white population of the island comprised a large number of persons of american ancestry and these acted in accord with the resident english the two together constituting an enlightened and highly prosperous community in eighteen eighty one the hawaiian king kalakaua i who had not before regarded himself as a particularly important personage made a tour of the world much to his surprise and delight he found his kingly dignity recognized by some of the greatest sovereigns of asia and europe who treated him with every mark of respect as a member of the royal caste his flag was saluted by the fleets of japan england france and germany military reviews were held in his honour and he was welcomed to palaces and fated as cordially as though he were a monarch of much greater power and pretensions note fifty three page two forty four when he returned he brought with him not merely jewelled decorations from the czar the austrian kaiser the queen of england and the pope but brand-new crowns which he had purchased in london for himself and for his consort together with a field battery intended for a standing army which in his imagination already existed his foreign journey in fact had turned his head on a small scale he reproduced the follies and extravagances of the egyptian khedive ismail the greatest spendthrift of modern times kalakua began to imitate the monarchs at whose courts he had been so lavishly entertained in his private life he gave himself up to the parasites and panders who swarmed about him and suggested to him new forms of wastefulness and new refinements of vice he instituted an order with insignia and decorations he built himself a palace he had himself crowned with splendid ceremonial though he had already been a king for nine years already he saw himself at the head of a great polynesian empire and in eighteen eighty seven he tried to interfere in the affairs of samoa with some dreamy notion of adding its islands to his own small kingdom note fifty four page two forty four 
Worse than this, he tried to ignore or to evade the constitution which had been established and ratified by the Hawaiian people. The royal expenses were now paid by the personal order of the king out of the public funds and without the knowledge or approval of his ministers. He tried to negotiate a foreign loan of $10 million in order to maintain a standing army for the enhancement of his royal prestige. He even lent an ear to the native element, who urged him so to modify the constitution as to exclude from the franchise the white residents of Hawaii. These, however, uniting with the more intelligent of the natives, not only resisted the attempt, but compelled the king to keep more closely within his constitutional limitations. In 1891, worn out by worry and by unrestrained excesses, Kalakua died and was succeeded by his sister, Liliuokalani. The new Hawaiian queen was a woman of great force of character and of much personal charm. Her bearing was truly regal. She presided over public functions with marked dignity, while all who were received by her in private audience came away charmed by her grace and affability. She had been highly educated and spoke both French and English with perfect purity and elegance. She was, however, as thoroughly imbued with a sense of her royal prerogative as though she had been an Elizabeth or a Maria Theresa. She was in England when the Constitution of 1887 was established in Hawaii, and when she learned that under its provisions the white residents were to have an equal share of political power, her indignation passed all bounds. Upon her ascension to the throne, she set herself to the task of abrogating that instrument and of restoring the personal government of the Kamehamehas. She had no sooner taken the coronation oath than she declared to one of the cabinet, My ministry shall be responsible to me alone. She dismissed the existing cabinet and chose a ministry of her own selection, which was opposed by a majority in the Hawaiian legislature. To provide the funds needed for her campaign against constitutionalism, she leagued herself with certain interests which sought a lottery franchise and a law licensing the sale of opium. By a series of intrigues, which it would be tedious to detail, these measures were legalized and at once the legislature was dissolved. On January 14, 1893, the Queen had planned to promulgate by royal decree a new constitution which should supersede the old one. Her ministry informed her that such an act would be revolutionary. She demanded their resignations, but they refused compliance and issued a proclamation, January 15th, setting forth these facts and declaring the throne vacant. On the following day, a mass meeting of the foreign residents and many of the natives formally decided that in view of the Queen's arbitrary acts, stringent measures were needed for the preservation of the public credit and to avert the final ruin of a financial condition already overstrained. A provisional government headed by Mr. Sanford B. Dole, a justice of the Supreme Court, was organized, with an advisory council representing the best elements of the community. This body, in view of the intense excitement prevailing in Honolulu, called upon the United States Minister, Mr. John L. Stevens of Maine, for assistance in preserving order. The United States cruiser Boston was lying in the harbor and at the request of Mr. Stevens, a battalion of sailors and marines was landed by Captain Wilkes and marched through the streets of the capital, encamping before the government building. Mr. Stevens, on his own responsibility, recognized the new government and officially proclaimed Hawaii to be under the protection of the United States, February 1, 1893. The Queen, seeing that resistance was useless, made a formal protest and then yielded as she said, only to the superior forces of the United States of America. 
The provisional government, doubtful of the effect of these events upon public opinion in the United States, hurriedly dispatched a commission to lay their case before President Harrison and to ask for the annexation of Hawaii to the United States. The President and Mr. J. W. Foster, who had succeeded Mr. Blaine as Secretary of State, strongly favored this suggestion, which was in fact not a new one, since as early as 1854 annexation had been considered. A treaty was hurriedly negotiated between the commissioners and the Secretary of State, and on February 15th a treaty of annexation was signed, providing for the continuance in power of the Dole government and the retention of the existing Hawaiian laws, subject, however, to the exercise of supreme authority by the United States, which was to appoint a commissioner empowered to veto any or all acts of the local administration. It was further provided that the United States should assume the Hawaiian debt, note 55, page 247, that it should allow the deposed queen an annual grant of $20,000, and that it should give to the princess Keiulani, who was next in line of succession, the sum of $150,000 in return for a renunciation of her rights. This treaty, after having been duly signed, was immediately submitted by President Harrison to the Senate for ratification, accompanied by a message in which he said, the overthrow of the monarchy was not in any way promoted by this government, but had its origin in what seemed to have been a reactionary and revolutionary policy in the part of Queen Liliuokalani, which put in serious peril not only the large and preponderating interests of the United States in the islands, but all foreign interests, and indeed, the decent administration of civil affairs and the peace of the islands. The restoration of Queen Liliuokalani to her throne is undesirable, if not impossible and unless actively supported by the United States, would be accompanied by serious disaster and the disorganization of all business interests. The influence and interest of the United States in the islands must be increased and not diminished. It is essential that none of the great powers shall secure these islands. Such a possession would not consist with our safety and with the peace of the world. This view of the situation is so apparent and conclusive that no protest has been heard from any government against proceedings looking to annexation. Every foreign representative at Honolulu promptly acknowledged the provisional government, and I think there is a general concurrence in the opinion that the deposed queen ought not to be restored. Note 56, page 248. President Harrison's assertion that the United States had had no part in the revolution in Hawaii was regarded by the opposition as disingenuous. It was said that Mr. Dole and his associates were simply conspirators who had acted in accordance with a preconceived plan, the details of which had been fully communicated to the American government. The opportune presence of the Boston at Honolulu was viewed as something more than a coincidence. The action of Mr. Stevens was denounced as treacherous to the government to which he had been accredited. The whole affair was described as an outrage upon a helpless people and as an attempt on the part of Mr. Harrison and his advisers to seize territory in a distant part of the world without any shadow of justification. The white residents of Hawaii were styled carpetbaggers, and their new government a bare-faced usurpation. Many sneers were directed at these sons of missionaries who, though aliens, had deprived the natives of their political birthright. Reviewing this affair in the light of all that is now known, two facts stand out beyond the possibility of refutation. In the first place, there can be no doubt that Queen Liliuokalani had just forfeited her throne. She had violated the constitution which she had solemnly sworn to maintain, and was proceeding to action such as would, in the case of an English sovereign, have led at once to the forfeiture of the royal rights. 
Furthermore, the sneers aimed at the sons of missionaries as aliens were thoroughly unwarranted. Mr. Dole, for instance, and his immediate associates were not aliens at all. Though of foreign ancestry, they had been born in Hawaii. Their homes were there. All their interests were there. They were the ones who had transformed the island into a civilized and prosperous community. It was they who maintained the system of public education, who paid the greater part of the taxes, and who supported the administration of the laws. If revolution is ever justified, and of this no Anglo-Saxon can feel any doubt, the revolution in Hawaii was surely so as being the act of men defending their political liberties and personal rights. On the other hand, it may be regarded as absolutely certain that the American minister, Mr. Stevens, was not only well aware of what was going on, but that he had fully informed his government, and that President Harrison and his advisers sympathized with the annexation movement. In February of 1892, Mr. Stevens had written to the State Department a letter in which he said, There are increasing indications that the annexation sentiment is gaining among the businessmen. On March 8th of the same year, he had asked Mr. Blaine for special instructions, in case the government here should be reorganized and overturned by an orderly and peaceful revolutionary movement. I have information which I deem reliable that there is an organized revolutionary party in the islands. These people are very likely to overthrow the monarchy and establish a republic with the ultimate view of annexation to the United States. On December 30th, Admiral Scarrett, who was under orders to take command of the Pacific Squadron, had called at the Navy Department in Washington for final instructions. He said to the Secretary, Mr. Tracy, I want to ask you about these Hawaiian affairs. When I was out there twenty years ago, I had frequent conversations with the then United States Minister, Mr. Pierce, on the subject of the islands. I was told then that the United States government did not wish to annex the islands of Hawaii. Mr. Tracy answered, the wishes of the government have changed. They will be very glad to annex Hawaii. As a matter of course, none but the ordinary legal means can be used to persuade these people to come into the United States. All right, sir, answered Admiral Skerritt. I only wanted to know how things were going on as a cue to my action. Note 57, page 251. Finally, Mr. Stevens, on the day when the American Marines were landed in Honolulu, had sent a dispatch to Washington saying, the Hawaiian pear is now fully ripe, and this is the golden hour for the United States to pluck it. From all these facts, it is quite obvious that the American government was fully aware of the impending revolution and was in sympathy with it as a means of securing the annexation of the islands. Whether the revolution would have succeeded had not Marines been landed from the Boston at the critical moment is a purely hypothetical question. As to the morality of the whole proceeding, opinions will always differ. At the time, the administration received much harsh criticism, and though President Harrison in his message on February 15th urged the Senate to ratify the annexation treaty at once, definite action upon it was delayed. The sands of the Harrison administration were fast running out. Its hours were numbered, and the Hawaiian question was soon to assume a new form and to pass through many different phases before it reached a final settlement. A few days more, and another hand had laid a firm grasp upon the helm of the state. End of chapter 5